All right, it's Romans 6, and it's verses 12 to 14. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, he's writing this letter then, um, around the year 60, to um, the disciples of Jesus Christ that gathered in a congregation regularly in the capital of the empire, in Rome. And they were very, very similar to us. They had to buy food and cook it and eat it every day and wash up afterwards. They had to pay taxes. They had to repair the roof when it leaked. They had to clean the toilet, have a bath, entertain family and friends when they came to the big city and goggle-eyed, looked around, Rome. They had to go to sleep and then wake up in the morning and dress, have a bit of breakfast and go off to work for a living. They had moral dilemmas and family tensions and as they grew old they had to handle frailty and illness and what Paul is doing in this section is to speak to these ordinary folks and he is filling their minds with great truths about God's salvation in Jesus Christ about living the Christian life and this is something then we can readily identify with and we can receive ourselves. We must fill our minds with things that endure. The passing challenges and baubles of this present world are not com- worth comparing to the glory which shall be revealed in us in a new heavens and a new earth. And we have to constantly set our minds on things above. And that is the purpose of Romans chapter 6. I was touched uh, in my preparation for this message in reading John Piper. And he said something which I thought was uh, really helpful in what I'm saying to you now. His wife had been away for three weeks. She'd gone to look after her sister's children when her sister was ill. And now she was on her way home, and so John, in the morning, uh, went to the airport to meet her. And uh, this is what happened. I drove to the airport, he said, and when I switched on the engine, the radio was already on. And that's the way most of us default. I thought to myself, God has been so good to me. He met me this morning in Ezekiel and in Job and in Second Peter. And he's kept my family safe and healthy these three weeks 
And now I'm about to be reunited with my wife and my daughter. Why not set my mind on things that are above and enjoy God and his word? So I turned off the radio and I said aloud from memory, slowly and moved with wonder, these words from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And I led everything I saw, the grass by the road, the grain elevators, the construction equipment, the McDonald's and Burger Kings. I let it all be caught up into that great coming reality. Behold, I make all things new. It's all going to be new. And sin and pain, and death will be gone. And God will be at the center. I arrived at the airport, and I walked in. And everything I saw was connected then with this great coming reality. I wasn't in a stupor. I could still see the casino ad... But there was no desire to get rich with this brief world. The short skirts and provocative dress, I still saw it, but there was no slavery to fantasizing or lust. The confectioner's smells and the yogurt shop. But there was no bondage to appetite. Everything had its place in the world. Some good and some bad. But this world was overshadowed by something far greater. And I thought, most of these people are living in a dream. They're thinking that this world is the main reality. Of course, it's real, and we must 
live here. It's our calling. God put us here. But compared to what's coming, it's not great. And only gets its true significance in relation to the great things of God. So, read out with pleasure. It was John Piper's response that morning visit when he went to pick up his wife and looking round at the sort of things we see each day. So, I've read you words from our text in Romans 6. Those words are staggering realities. Could greater facts be concentrated in fewer verses than you've just heard in this portion of Romans. Some of you don't see it. You're not in the least interested in this passage. You get no emotional, affectionate resonance from what you heard read. What are you interested in? Are you interested in the rugby match and next Saturday and Wes playing Ireland? Interested in some new CDs? Plans for a summer vacation? You're going to lose ten pounds? You're going to get a new car? You're going to get an Apple phone or iPad? Would you remember any of those things in a year's time? Will you remember any of them in uh, three months' time? And I'm speaking to you now about truth and about reality that's come to us from God. You could be like a certain person. Let's think of him, a mythical person. He goes to North Wales. And on a clear day, then, he climbs Snowdon, the highest and the busiest mountain in England and Wales. And yet he soon turns his back on that majesty, and he takes a garden trowel out of his bag, and he builds a molehill. And he shouts out, hey guys, look at my mountain. Isn't that neat? Now, I want to say that some of the concerns that have been pressing in on you this week and that have seemed very important will, with a little clear-headedness, will show you that they're not all that great. They're not all that important. Turn around, I'm saying to you. Turn on the molehill that you've built and look at Snowden. Don't live your life walking down Great Darkest Street and looking at the cake shop and the boutiques and the milkshake bar and the pubs and the banks and the betting shops and the short skirts and the fish and chips thinking, ah, this is really what it's all about. What it's all about is that God loved this world, the world he had made, and he sent his son into the world to Golgotha wherein by his dying and his death he descend us by laying our guilt on the Lord Jesus and condemning our sin in him. And then God took the lovely, fragrant, beautiful life of righteous Jesus and he imputed that life to twerps like us. 
It's all about us seeing that eternal reality with relief and with gratitude. It's new every morning. We're like a man who dug a hole in a field to bury something and his blade hit a a box and it was full of treasure. And we say, I haven't lived for money. I haven't lived for sex. I live to serve God and to glorify Jesus Christ in every way, every day. God hasn't given you your life and blessed you with uh, loving parents and a peaceful land in order for you to spend your life building molehills. It's to be spent in reckoning the, the total relevance and the reality of the words of our text. Let's turn to it. And the first thing that we see in verse 12 is a reminder again that sin reigns over unbelievers. He says to these Christians uh, who first heard these words in the history of the world, men and women who had to go to work and fix the roof and cook a meal and nurse a sick child, do not let it reign over you. Don't let sin reign over you. And we are to obey those words. Those words are just as prohibitive as any of the Ten Commandments. Don't let sin be your master and boss you about this week. The people of our town, the people you work with, the people you study with in school and at university, they live under the control of Lord Sin. And yet all the time they are boasting about how free they are. Free. They're not Christians because sin is constantly telling them, don't believe the Bible. Don't treat Sunday different from any other day. Don't believe in Jesus Christ. And they obey him because they are the subjects of Lord's sin. Every single person who's not in Christ is living in a kingdom of darkness. The second thing we are told here that every Christian has been delivered from serving sin. We knew people in Jesus Christ to speak back to sin when sin says, you're not going to chapel twice on a Sunday, are you? And he says, you're not going to read the Bible. You're not going to pray, are you? And we reply and we say, we surely are. Not on my life am I going to obey you. I won't let you be my Lord. And you can say that, and you can do it because the resurrection power of Jesus Christ has honed in on you and reigns in your mind and in your heart. And through that might, you are strong. You're not physically strong. You're not intellectually strong. You won't get straight A stars in your examination. You're not emotionally strong. You can... Sometimes just uh, feel so low and weep. But you are strong. Every Christian is strong to say no to sin. And yes to righteousness. That's a strength that nobody at all in Aberystwyth, none of the boys and girls in school, none of the students at the university can say except those who are joined to Jesus Christ in whose hearts and lives 
the Savior is. All the rest are weaklings. And even Christians, you know, they're not strong because they're religious or because they're good. But because they can say, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. They're out of the kingdom of darkness. We have a new king, a new master, a new citizenship, a new way of looking at things, uh, new excitements, new values, new enthusiasms. We even got an, a new sense of humor, the things we laugh at, how we spend our money and our gifts and our time and our weekends. We've drawn lines and we've said, I'm not crossing that line, and we don't. You've been changed by the grace of God. You've been given a brand new life. Your life story, you Christians have a life story, and it, it's two volumes. And the first volume is called What I Was Like Before I Knew Jesus Christ as My Savior. And the second volume is called What My Life is Like Since Jesus Became My Lord and Master. That's your life. It's like the ads for Weight Watchers. I used to be 300 pounds, but when I joined Weight Watchers, I slimmed down to 110, and I bought a completely new wardrobe. There was a before and an after in that person's life, and so it is with a Christian. He was in Adam, now he's in Christ. He was in the kingdom of darkness, now he's in the kingdom of light. He's come out of shadowlands. And he can see, and he can evaluate, and he can appreciate the God who made the starlings and the sunset. Once sin reigned over him, now Jesus Christ is his master. So no Christian will allow sin to reign over him. They have a new king, and they live in a new country. You know how people emigrate to the UK, and uh, then they apply for citizenship after a while, and... Many of them are accepted and they pass through a new ceremony they brought in now to give them a, a sense of Britishness and British values, as they call it. And most of them are very proud of their new citizenship. And they might say, I was born in Iran, but now I'm a British citizen and here's my passport. See, it says, British citizen. And there is my name. I am a citizen of the UK. I was asked when I was interviewed, do you renounce the government and the flag of Iran? And I said, I certainly did. I go back to Iran and I see my brothers and my family there, but I'm not a citizen of that country any longer. I am a citizen of the United Kingdom. And should there be a war, I will fight for my new nation. I would even fight against Iran, though it would break my heart to do so. And I pray that that will never, never happen. We have been given a new citizenship. It's in the kingdom of God. We serve our king, Jesus. And God has given to uh, every Christian a new passport. And there's a stamp on it. It says, the kingdom of God. And that's a great defining spiritual truth. And you can't go back on it. You have to reckon yourself. You've got to count yourself. Consider yourself to be a citizen of a new kingdom. You can't live the way you used to live. Serving the laws of the king of darkness, you change. Your whole status has been transformed. Thirdly, Christians will not let sin reign in their mortal bodies. And so you see the difference between 
King Saul and Potiphar's wife. That's why I read it in your hearing this evening. Saul's envy of David's popularity festered. He allowed it to fester, to grow and grow. It became a horrid obsession, which turned to hatred and murder. One day he picked up a javelin and he hurled it across the room at David to try to pin him to the wall and end his life. He used his bodily strength, his coordination to try and pin him and kill him. Saul was letting sin reign in his mortal body. And men did the same when they nailed the great David's greatest son to the cross. And when a Roman soldier thrust a spear in his side. That is how the rule of sin over them showed itself. But oh, it was very different. When Potiphar's wife sought to seduce Joseph, he turned his body away from her. He repulsed her with a handoff, and his legs ran, and his heart beat faster, and his lungs were bursting. He put distance between himself and her. He refused to let sin reign in his mortal body. He refused to obey the evil desires of sin. Verse 12. And so Paul lingers on this theme and he says, Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Joseph didn't do that in part of his house. The parts of his body. Um, Yield what? The parts of his body to sin. What parts of his body? Your hands, your fingers, your eyes, your ears, your lips, your feet, your toes, your loins, and all the rest. He's very specific. Do not offer the parts of your body as instruments of wickedness. The word instruments, it's the same word for weapons. So don't offer the parts of your body to be a weapon of wickedness like Saul picked up and aimed and then coordinated the flight of the javelin to kill young David. You don't do that. You yield yourself, your your hands, your eyes, your coordination, your energy as those who have been brought from death to life. And they are weapons of righteousness. They kill remaining sin. They kill the devil. So there are uh, a couple of facts about this offering to God. Uh, it must be decisive. You know, I have no qualms about asking you to make a decision. To appeal to your wills to act. I like good decisions. And I'm saying you've got to come to a place in your life when you decide whether you're going to be God's man or God's woman or the devil's man or woman. It's a decision. Too many professing Christians are living partly in the world and partly in the kingdom of heaven. You remember what Elijah called it on Mount Carmel? He called it limping 
between two opinions. You think of a schoolboy and he's walking along in the gutter and one foot is on the pavement and the other foot is on the gutter and he's walking along and the other boys are chuckling at his antics. It's so inelegant. It's so laughable. You cannot live as someone who is in Adam and in Christ. You are only in Christ. You have to decide, I'm going to live now as someone who is joined to Jesus Christ forever. New life shows itself and you live for the Savior. You live to honor him and please him and do his will. And you commit yourself to that. The choice must be decisive. You know, you only have one new heart now. You don't have two hearts. The heart of stone is gone. You've only got one heart. You're only in Christ. You're not in Christ and in Adam. And then also, uh, as well as being decisive, it must be focused. It mustn't be vague that you're going to be sort of religious from now on. It's not like that. The great great conclusion of the 11 chapters of this, uh, this letter, first 11 chapters are all about the, the teaching of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Their theology. Their wonderful Christian doctrine. Vibrant and living and glorious. And then they end at the end of chapter 11 with uh, of him and through him to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. And that ends chapter 11 and then chapter 12 says I, I beseech you then in the light of all the mercies that you've had in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So you're, you're offering things to God. And what you offer, you offer your body you offer. It's a, a carnous offering that you make to God. Why does God want your body? Because if he's got your body, he's got you. Hasn't he? Because uh, everywhere your body goes, you are. And God had Joseph's body, and so Joseph belonged to God, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Be what you are. You're a servant of God. You're not a servant of sin. So behave like those whose master is the Lord Jesus. And spiritual victory will be more real for you if you if you focus on your body, what your body does, what your tongue does, and your eyes see, and what you're listening to. You say to God, uh, Lord, what will you have me do? Now, you do that decisively, I'm saying, and in a focused way, for the first definitive time at the beginning of the Christian life. You yield yourself to God, and then you renew it every day. Like I tell you what John Stott says, it's in that Timothy Dudley Smith um, biography. He'd wake up in the morning, he'd sit on the edge of the bed, and he'd give God his hands, and he'd give God his mind, and he'd give God his tongue and his eyes, and his affections and his heart, and his loins, and, and he would give himself, his legs, every part of him, he would give to God. 
Well, what about your eyes? Have you been looking at things you shouldn't have been looking at this past week? Some of you have problems with masturbation. I think it's a common enough uh, temptation in uh, a world as sexually charged as the Western world is today. You'll grow out of it. It's not an unforgivable sin. Christian marriage will help, but you will also. You, you have to do things. You will help. Um, you give your hands to the Lord so they don't click on the keyboard and you don't go to those websites where you see such dirty and unhelpful images. You say, take my hands, take my fingers, take my loins, you say to God. Oh, there are your ears. Have you been listening to boastfulness and you admire people with bags of personality that just uh, blurt out wittily without thinking? Have you been listening to gossip and slander and filthy talk? And your lips. How have you been using your lips this past week? Have you heard people? Have you been provoked, you hit your thumb and you swore are your lips yielded to God what about your arms, are your arms yielded to God or do you use your arms to grasp more of the power of this world or the goods of this world, what about your feet are they swift to run messages for God do they get you out of the chair and do you go and visit people and help people spiritual victory isn't going to happen until you make it very personal How personal is it? Well, it's your body. (laughs) Your body. The desires and the longings and the affections. uh, You give them to him. He made it. And you want to please him in all things. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. You see, it's in our text, verse 13. Don't offer them to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. So, you say, what are my lips and my ears and my mind and my heart and my stomach and my feet? And real Christians, then, they they offer that to the Lord and uh, they put them at the service of the Heavenly Father. You think of how the angels uh, meet together before the Lord every day and he gives them orders. He says, there's... Someone who needs help in Aberystwyth, and you want you to go and help him. And the angel does his bidding and comes to a little town and to a little life and a little home, and he helps us, helps us in our driving and so on. And we are just the same as those angels. We gather before the Lord, and you say, Guide me today, Lord. Help me now. Close doors for me, open doors for me. Keep me on the narrow path today, Lord. Keep my body. And all that I am. So I'm saying to you, really, um, there has to be knowledge. That's why you come and listen to a Bible-centered worship. Uh, we sing and we pray to him, and then he speaks to us in, in his word. And so our understanding is opened up of what God wants and uh, what he's provided for us by union with Jesus Christ and our new status. He tells us how we're to live and 
how we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. A dead sacrifice is no good. A futile gesture is no good. But a living relationship with God is so important. You don't overcome evil with evil, but you overcome evil with good. That sort of thing. Know the Sermon on the Mount. Know the great ethical sections at the end of Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and the letter of James and... uh, you're aware that you're never going to be free from the attacks of sin. You're never going to be free from temptation on your deathbed. The devil will be merciless and he'll give you all sorts of doubts and all sorts of pain and sorrow as you nurse those who are in pain and are dying. You're not going to be free from these attacks of the evil one. You have to know these things. There has to be knowledge. And so my task is to inform you and open up the word and lay it on you and educate you and teach you. But then also you have to bring these truths into your own reckoning and count on their reality day by day. That is, you are to apply to yourself what I'm teaching you, the doctrines of the Bible. Freedom from Slavery to sin is already the case. You are free. If you're a Christian, you are free from being a slave to sin. That's your status. You're out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. I'm not saying live in a state of denial, but I'm saying God has annihilated the dominion and lordship of sin over you. You're no longer a helpless slave. You can say no to sin. You're able to do that. And you've got to be seriously aware of it. And never forget it. And then also you have to yield very practically and personally your body. The parts of your body to the Lord. It's no good you know, getting half drunk on a Saturday night and coming here on a Sunday and think you're going to be blessed if you're brain is scrambled eggs it's no good you uh, going to the web and spending hours with web the web or listening to heavy rock it's not going to be any good you yield yourself to God for the first definitive time at the new birth when the new birth kicks in then you start From now on, I'm going to serve the Lord. My body is going to serve the Lord. And then increasingly, your lips become his, and your mind and your thinking, every thought becomes his, and more and more. All right, that's the Christian life. Let me illustrate it, okay? It's uh, time for me to tell you a a little practical story now to refresh you, okay? Here's uh, a man who's been single for a long time, and... uh, he amazes all his friends by marrying. She's simply a wonderful bride. But now he takes into marriage a lot of baggage from being a bachelor. He has a hard time remembering that he's not single any longer. He's joined to his wife. And that there are habits that need to be cleaned up. But he's not doing that. He's going out, for example and making major purchases without discussing it with his wife. He's making social plans about their holidays. 
without consulting her. And uh, he's untidy. And he leaves things on the floor in the bedroom. And, as though it's a bachelor pad that he's living in. And she is increasingly upset that he's marginalizing her. He's not reckoning on the fact that he's married. And he needs to count on that. He means account that he is a married man. And there's an older and a godlier man uh, in the congregation. And he can see that the marriage isn't as happy as it should be. And so he draws him aside and he says, uh, My friend, I think, really, you ought to remember now, things are different. Now that you're married, you can't go on acting as if you were a bachelor. And that your wife has to fit in with all your attitudes and plans. You understand? It's not that the fellow has to say, Now, if I think, and if I concentrate, and if I reckon hard enough, I'll be married. He already is married. He just needs to live like a Christian husband should live. Now I'm at this moment then taking the role of the older, wiser man and telling you that your living should reflect what you are as a Christian. Be what you are, I'm saying to you. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 6. It's very similar for a, a woman who's grown up uh, in some setting where she really hasn't been loved by her mother and father in a devoted and a caring way. And then suddenly she's a bride. And she's in a relationship with a man who is her husband. And he loves her passionately. And she finds it smothering. She really has a hard time taking in his ardor. It's tough because she hasn't experienced it in her life before. Love focused on her, care for her, asking how is she, and so on. And the, an older woman can sense what's wrong. And so the older woman says to her, you, you know, he's really crazy about you. And that's a nice problem to have. Many women would be envious of you. You need to think about that and thank God for that and take that in. And she gives us some advice and calms her and says, oh, no, these are early years, aren't they? Now I'm being the older, wiser woman. And I'm telling you to reckon on God's love, God's, God's care for you. God's care for you every moment, in every action. He loves you and he wants the best for you. And you're to reckon that everything that comes to you comes from a God of love, your heavenly Father. So, uh, Romans 6, Paul is telling us about the reality that God in his grace has established, and we need to pause. And when you say, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin's reign, I'm alive now with Christ and in Christ. Some of you think, uh, God saved me back then, on the old rugged cross, he saved me. And one day he's going to raise my body and uh, I'm going to uh, be with him forever and ever. And now I've got to get by by myself. It's not like that. He's here. He's with us. He's pastoring you tonight. He's teaching you. He's helping you. He's helped you. You suddenly, uh, you've got a baby. <laughs> and the, the nurse says goodbye and we're there with the baby. 
And, uh, you know, you creep into the bedroom. Is, he, is the baby still breathing? <laughs> For the first days, you were so, you were so uh, concerned. And then you trust God, don't you? You trust God that God does love and God does care. And he's with you. And he keeps you. This glorious status, the new status that we have. Well, I've got a little story or two to say. You're all right. You're looking fresh enough. And uh, what's there afterwards that you've got to hurry off to? All right. I will say a last thing then. That uh, Christians offer themselves to God as those who are under grace, not law. I, I can't dodge that. It's such a big statement, isn't it? Uh, this is what he says in verse 13. So um, we give ourselves to God, everything... In the light of who we are, we give our bodies, and sin isn't our master, because you're not under law, you're under grace. Well, what does that mean? It's, it's abused, isn't it? There are meticulous obedience to other people's property. There's meticulous care about telling the truth that is important to us. And we can't say, oh, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. That's an abuse of this phrase. So Paul is talking about you give yourself to God and you serve God because you're under the grace of God. You're not under the law of God. You know the law of God, it just says, don't do this, don't do that, don't, don't. That's the law. Gives you no strength. Gives you no motivation. Except that this is God's law. Saying no. Grace isn't like that. Grace is omnipotence acting to redeem and sanctify and change us. That's what grace is. And we are under that grace. It gives you the power to do what the law tells you. To do. Do what God says because whatever God says, whatever commandment you read in the Bible, there's a promise built into that commandment of God saying, and I can help you to do this. I can enable you to do that. Not to have any gods before me. Not to make any idols and worship them. Not to take my name in vain. To honor your father and mother. To keep the Lord's day holy. Not to be violent. Not to be sexually immoral. Not to steal. Not to lie. Not to covet. I, I can help you. Grace can help you keep what God says in his law. When David was in such a messed up relationship with Bathsheba. His bones waxed old, the authorized version said. That is, he had no energy. Oh, he was a poor son of a gun, wasn't he? Oh, he couldn't sleep at night. and He had this great weight of guilt on him for what he had done in getting a woman's husband killed and taking her to add to his harem. Now I'm saying it's crucial for your witness. If you're going to be salt in Aberystwyth this week, 
If you're going to be light in this dark town this week, then uh, you've got to be yielding your body and all its parts to God. You've got to give him your life this week. You've got to say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee this week. Okay, I'm ending. Have you heard how Eric Alexander became a Christian? Eric Alexander is an elderly uh, Scots preacher, greatly esteemed and loved, kindly and warm and serious-minded, and had a great ministry for many years in in Scotland. And uh, his parents, father and mother, not Christians. Four grandparents, none of them Christians. No Christian tradition in the family at all. Well, did he come under the influence of some evangelical preacher? No, he didn't. What brought him to the Lord? I'll tell you. Three Christian friends in school became Christians and the change in their life was evident. They were presenting their bodies from now on as a living sacrifice to God. They're in the school. They weren't like the other boys in school. And then on top of those three boys, his best friends being converted, his brother was converted. And when he met his brother later on after he'd been converted, well, the change was obvious in him. His brother was different. Four boys God used to change Eric Alexander. I'm saying transformed lives are the most powerful witness to Jesus Christ. And then when he was 12, a new minister came to Aberdeen called William, still to the church where he was going to Sunday school. And um, he decided he was going to become a doctor. And in fact, later on, he did um, study for a year in the School of Medicine in, in Glasgow. There was a lady in, the, in Gilcomston Church, and she had a crush on Mr. Still. And she, she would find any excuse to get into a conversation with him. He was a bachelor. One day at Sunday school, she was talking to young Eric, and she saw Mr. Still walking by. She said, ooh, Mr. Still, I want to introduce to you Eric Alexander. And so she dragged him over to meet the small boy. She said, Mr. Still, this is Eric Alexander, and when he grows up, he wants to be a doctor. And Mr. Still leaned over, and he put his hand on Eric's head, and he said, Eric Alexander, whatever you grow up to become, I hope you will grow up to be like Jesus Just a sentence. 75 years later, Eric's never forgotten those words that William still said to him. Now, isn't that interesting? That's precisely what happened. Salvation came to him because three friends in school were credible Christians. Salvation came to him because an older brother came to know the Lord. And there was a difference that he saw in his home. Salvation came to him because a Bible preaching minister named William Still came to Gill and 
was the preacher there. Being transformed by the grace of God is a crucial part of having an impacting witness next week in school, at university, in your family, at home, with your neighbors, in the bookshop. If you don't have a desire to, to live like that, what are you going to tell me are the evidences that you're a real Christian? A real Christian wants to live like that. A real Christian wants to help other people and minister to other people. We need to seek that grace and cry mightily to God that he'll save us. So that we are to know tonight what God has done when he's taken us out of Adam and put us in Christ and how he's ended the reign of uh, sin over us and now we can say no to sin and we can say, here's my body, Lord. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. So we've got to say, reckon yourself to be dead unto sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, bless this word to us now and help us to be those men and women who are different and are changed and uh, humbly then serve thee and please thee in what we say and what we do. Help us just to smile at a little boy and speak to him and say kind words to him that will impact him and make us a blessing in our home to our parents and to our friends in school, and to one another in the congregation here. We ask it in Jesus' name and to his glory. Amen. Amen.